Hello and welcome back to Podcast from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. We've had quite a week in Stanford, my little village, down in the Cape, um, with very bad flooding and I thought I'd tell you about it, you know, because um, one really uh, participates or is present at historic events um, and uh, I was last week, uh, the Klein River that normally meanders or barely meanders past my house in the relatively tiny village of Stanford here in the Western Cape isn't much to write home about. It has the distinction of being the river in South Africa where the source and the mouth are both the closest together. In this I reckon no more than 30 kilometers as the crow flies and in all the claim is around 90 kilometers long, not very long at all. It ends in a peculiar sort of estuary, a Tamanus. Some of you may know it. The estuary is normally closed by a sandbar most of the time, and only when heavy rains fall in the winter does the Hermanus Lagoon, as it's called, breach. Sometimes artificially, sometimes people illegally breach it, um, for whatever reason. Uh, and the berm then runs into the sea at Hermanus's famous Grotto Beach, and properties along the lagoon, as many people will know who have tried to buy, are very expensive. Stanford's really the only major piece of civilization the river passes through in its short life. And we're a quiet, ordered little town. There's a Dutch Reformed church with a great organ in the main road and a smaller Anglican church at the far end of the grassed village square, possibly one of the very few left in the country. There are still even a few gravel roads in the village and some discussion about preserving them and whether perhaps we haven't overdone the tarring and paving. Stanford's neat and tidy and so are the villagers. If you report a water leak, it's fixed on the same day. There's a library regularly serviced by the provincial library service. The two ATMs in the town always seem to break down under pressure at the weekends when people come from Cape Town to stay. There's no pharmacy, no butcher, no baker, and not even the spa has reopened since it burned down in 2019. Loud noises and building work on Sundays and public holidays invite instant um, condemnation. Most people seem to know most people. I think we were about 7,000 souls in all. As it passes Stanford, the river is visible from dozens of houses, some built originally on higher ground and many newer ones on the riverbanks or nearby. That's New Stanford, I remember the estate agent telling us when he first came to look at the town about 12 years ago. Some lovely homes, I remember thinking, and we were told gently that many would probably not be available for the money we were then proposing to spend if we found something we liked. My wife and I left Johannesburg for Stanford in May 2019, and we've been very happy here. We bought an old home, a former dairy shed, I subsequently learned, and spent a quite hideous amount of money renovating it. We were just in time for COVID, and for the first time I got a sense of how the village responded to a crisis, or at least more difficult circumstances, and people looked after each other. When the first hard lockdowns were lifted, Madre an excellent restaurant near the middle of town started making coffee and scones in the hour or so we had to gather and talk, and it became a thing. When there have been heavy rains or the constant fires that seem to break out in the Cape in the hot and dry summers, people pull together and from all parts of town. But without doubt the biggest thing you notice when you move from Johannesburg to the Western Cape is the weather. Stanford lies halfway between Hermanus and Hansby, and it's set back a few kilometres from the sea, but that's no protection from what you're about to receive. 
In Johannesburg, you get a violent lightning-y sort of afternoon summer thunderstorm. And then it stops and every smells, everything smells gorgeous. Down here in the Cape, I remember being taught at Tata High School back in the day, it's a Mediterranean climate and down here it rains in the winter. That's just a quick fact you have to remember when you're a kid for the geography multiple choice exam questions. But it's only when you come here permanently that you realize it doesn't only just rain in winter, but it rains the whole winter. And that winter lasts, or can last, from June to December. It's relentless. Yes, there are lovely sunny days, but planning any event down here is really a nightmare because the weather is so obnoxious. It's like being at sea. When it's not rain, the wind is howling. We lost part of our roof one night in 2020. As I record this, to be honest, I have to say, there's not a cloud in the sky, and I've fled to the shade of our veranda. So it's mixed, but often not in a very nice way. In Joburg, in the winter, is cold. The Cape in the winter is cold and wet and windy. This winter seems to have been exceptionally cold, or so I thought until villagers with a long history here posted photographs of the Kleinrufierberger, the Klein River Mountains, which I sit and stare at in almost days, dusted with snow. It's like the 70s winters used to be, one new friend told me. And every time I want to complain about something in Stanford, someone has evidence that it's much better than it used to be. That was probably why, weekend before last, most people, most people had largely ignored warnings earlier in the week of strong winds and rain on the Sunday and Monday. Level 6 was coming, we were told. Be prepared, whatever that might have meant. By the Saturday, the local mayor had forwarded a note from the National Weather Service saying the weather warning had been upgraded to level 9, the highest ever for the Cape. Still, we did nothing. We went to Madre for friends, with friends for Sunday lunch. It was raining by then, but then it's been raining, I thought, for the last three months. And by the time I went to sleep around 11.30 that night, happy in the knowledge that Wales had just all but knocked Australia out of the Rugby World Cup, it wasn't even all that windy. Of course, what we didn't know was that while it was raining hard here, it was raining a lot harder at, at a tiny agricultural settlement called Teslasdal. Um, we had 100 millimetres in Stanford. Teslasdal had 200. That Monday morning started slowly in our household. I checked the phone at about 6 o'clock and there were one or two WhatsApps about the weather knocking out power supplies. At 6.52 the first message popped up from someone down in New Stanford, near but not on the river. Flooding bad in Sillery Street, it said. Need evacuation if possible. It was light enough now to see, so I got out of bed and I walked onto the wet veranda. It was still raining. I have two gardens between me and the river, but I can see over both. I had to look twice. The first property had simply vanished. The second was rapidly vanishing, and I could hear an adult calling to children. But there are no children in the house next door. I looked over to where the river normally sits and it was just one piece of water from there to my neighbour about 15 metres away. The farm on the other side of the river had also disappeared. Police sending someone read a WhatsApp at 6.59. By 7.03, the sense that something huge had happened had begun to sink in. Stanford is in trouble, said another WhatsApp message. I am safe. X and Y are flooded. Please help, said another person. I'm trapped. 
By 7.25, the children I'd heard being shouted at next door were at our front door, dripping wet with their gran, our bottom neighbour. She had had a climb over a back wall, over the neighbour's increasingly flooded garden and into the street behind our house. I called the neighbour who was still in bed, better have a look outside, I suggested. In ten minutes he was sitting in our living room as well. And this was higher ground. Down in New Stanford things were getting worse. It was still raining hard and people who could were now upstairs and trapped. Good friends of ours, the sports writer Kevin McCullum and Kerry Ann, his wife, had tried to drive out of their new home in the same Sillery Street. But the floodwaters were now so powerful and deep and fast, they simply lifted their car off the ground and began to sweep it in the river. It's hard to imagine what they were thinking during this time, and harder still now to watch the video of them being swept, what would have been to certain death. That journey was longer than a hundred metres and ended only when the water pushed them up against literally the only tree of any significance between them and the centre of the Clane River. It took rescuers nearly an hour to retrieve them and their two dogs. Pretty soon, they were also in the house, cold and wet, but safe. Elsewhere in Sillery and surrounding streets, the National Sea Rescue Institute was zipping around with incredible efficiency from house to house in modified jet skis, taking people out of windows and off their roofs. I have to say something about this flood because it's the first time I've really ever been near one. At about 7.30, I walked down our road to the river, which at that point had risen to the road itself and was beginning to submerge a part of it. I watched the river from where I stood, and I've honestly never seen anything quite so menacing. Storms make a noise. The sea, rough as can be, makes a noise. But the river I saw was just so powerful. You could see by the foam on it just how fast it was moving. At one fast, at, at one point I watched a fenter trailer sweep down the middle, way faster than I could possibly run. And if you were in Silly Street that morning, and up to your waist in water, it would have taken you. And the thing about the river, it was utterly silent, an absolute killer. Had you looked out of your window, with the water a foot from your door, just a minute before it got light, you would have been none the wiser. Nobody died, thank goodness but the aftermath of the Great Clane River flood of 2023 was almost as dramatic as the flood itself. There was mud everywhere, in everything. Homes that had nominally survived were caked with it. People lost clothes, cars, furniture, and lifetime memories. They'll get past it, I'm sure. But no one who got wet in that water will ever forget it. Now, a week later, they're still cleaning homes. The village typically has put its combined back into helping people and into cleaning up the mess. Some people were still waiting for their insurers to send assessors. No easy thing in the Overberg where roads across the district had been badly damaged by the rains. I remember when we first arrived here, people would point out where the 50-year and 100-year high watermarks were. Last week's flood beat them both. New memories will now be made, new history will be told. But will anyone learn from this? particularly perhaps the authorities, the municipality. It's all very well posting a notice of a unique event like a level 9 storm. But I think you also have to say what it means. If there's a high risk of flooding of homes along the Clane River, then say so and advise people to get to higher ground. Stanford has easily absorbed the victims into spare bedrooms and granny flats. That could have been done the evening before. And you have to ask how it was that the lower parts of Stanford had been developed in the first place. The fact that many homes in New Stanford are on the Clane River's 5-metre floodplain is not new. 
1986, a UCT master's dissertation by Miranda Waldron absolutely nailed it. When she argued that development adjacent to an estuary, like the one in, at the end of the Klein River, should not be permitted below the 50-year or, where possible, the 100-year flood line. An estuary mouths may only be open, she argued, artificially at predetermined water levels after consultation with the department. I'll only quote from her paper because I don't think it's interesting. These guidelines should be followed, she said, and any proposed low-lying development should not be passed by planning authorities. There are several factors contributing to the flooding of low-lying land. If the estuary mouth is closed, lagoon levels rise and the estuary cannot easily absorb the large fluvial influx resulting from a period of high rainfall. Consequently, the river water level rises and low-lying land is flooded. Well, uh, that happens from time to time in Stanford and it's not, not really a big issue. Then she continues, the clain and hard to be the hard to be being a tributary, early tributary of the of the clain, are both heavily infested by alien vegetation, which grow along, which grow in the river and on the banks. The stretches of river free of alien vegetation are frequently occupied by palmit, which is growing from bank to bank. She says a palmit, which it looks like it's a it's a small palm-like looking plant, um, which you'll instantly recognize if you saw it. Palmit is an indigenous plant and often prevents bank erosion, but in this case can act as a dam to any debris floating downstream. If the river was cleared of alien, if the river was cleared of alien vegetation, it would flow faster and more freely, and there would be less silt deposition and it would be less susceptible to flooding. It is expensive to clear such a well-established stand of alien vegetation, and if one farmer does it, his land is liable to have even worse flooding if the river downstream is still blocked by plants. The alien vegetation has blocked the river to such an extent that water levels in the river become disproportionately high compared with the incoming rainfall. It is thought that the presence of alien vegetation in the river, combined with a high water level in the lagoon and a period of high rainfall in the catchment area, would cause serious flooding upstream from Stanford. Below Stanford, the river is relatively clear of alien vegetation. High estuary water levels combined with a period of high rainfall would be the cause of flooding in this case. Now she's perfectly describing what happened. Um, what is that? Uh, nearly 30 years later. The partially blocked river might even be forced to change its course, yes, into one of the low-lying areas on the northern banks and thus flood the main road between Stanford and Hermanus at Stanford. Well, it did. The, the bridge that uh, uh, the, the bridge on the road between Stanford and Amanus was just recently brand new bridge completed last year, about eight meters taller than the um, uh, the one it replaced, and it was supposed to be completely floodproof. Well, it was completely swept over by the water that arrived that that Sunday night, that Monday morning. In conclusion, she says. The problem of flooded fields and loss of crops is not as significant as was first suggested, so it's not a problem for farmers. Proposed new developments in Stanford, however, face a real threat of flooding. Such development should not be permitted on low-lying land. If houses are built on land that is known to have been flooded, they should be of such a nature that they can withstand flooding, for example built on elevated pilings or post support. It is important that the threat of flooding is not used to justify the artificial opening of the estuary mouth.
I don't know, but I thought that was just absolutely fascinating. I'm not sure quite what the vegetation is that grows along the sides of the Clane River as it passes through Stanford and a few kilometers before it gets to Stanford. It's a it's a tall reed, um, a sort of a an, uh, our version, I suppose, of a of a bulrush. Some people say it's called Phragmites australis. It's a it's a it's a reed. It's a river reed, but it's packed. It can, on some time, on some parts of the rivers that pass it through Stanford, these reeds are almost twenty five, thirty meters deep, and they they do they must have that damming effect that the author of this dissertation, Miranda Walden, was talking about. And the and the, and the people responsible, look, everybody in Stanford, I know, um, is an expert on what caused the floods and, and what needs to be done. But I was just struck by how this particular paper, which was put on the WhatsApp group by somebody um, uh, a few days ago, um, I was struck by how present it seemed to, seemed to be. River did exactly what she said it would do, whatever it is that's growing on the side. And it may well be that it's up to the Cape Provincial Administration to do something about it. Not only in Stanford, but all over the Overberg, where I've seen these reeds next to rivers. Some people will argue, I've no doubt, that they are ecologically important um, and that what has happened is simply part of the natural order of things. When houses get in the way, it's the problem for the people who built them, not for nature. Anyway, not to politicize things, but um, the Western Cape is supposed to be the most sensible part of the country after all. These weren't shacks, thank heavens. They were proper houses. The poorer parts of Stanford, where there are shacks, are on higher ground. Otherwise, what happened here last week would have been an entirely different and sadder story. Well, thank you for listening to me. Um, I'll be back next week and uh, yeah, you take care and I'll see you soon bye bye